Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So I don't mean to freak you out or anything, but uh, one week we're going to be in Nashville. <laughs> we're, we're arriving uh, late in the afternoon. Right, uh, the day before the the show. The show, of course, is on the twenty seventh, and um, yeah, they just oh, I I just got a notification. Our merch was delivered to Zanies. Ooh, so excited! So we're pretty excited about all of that. These are limited edition shirts. They're only going to be available to uh, people who are who are at the show. And we hope to see you there. You can get all the details at theboxofoddities.com. Yeah, if you're in the area, or even if you, you know, you're up for a road trip, we'd love to see you. General admission tickets, there are some left. I think those are 20 bucks. And I guarantee you, you'll get your money's worth when it comes to entertainment, because it's always fun to watch people fall on their face publicly <laughs> and humiliate themselves. Depending on what shoes I wear, I may literally fall on my face. We'll see. I don't know. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing you at Zany's on the 27th of February. I do. I want to real quick in. Um, I, I just want to I, I want to say hey to uh, our, our new friends and, and, and lovely freaks. I know that there are a few people who have made their way here since hearing about us on uh, Two Girls, One Ghost. And we love those girls so much. And we're so happy uh, that uh, we've had such a, a warm welcome from people who have listened to that podcast and, and now have joined us. And I'm just really excited. And I love you. That's all. That's all there is. <laughs> So you go first this week. I'm very excited. What do you have? What you got for me? Oh, well, okay. <clears throat> so it's 1941. Okay. Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, Tennessee. And what? that's where we're, we're going to be right near Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah, we're, I'm ramping up. I'm getting ready. I'm uh, doing some Tennessee research. Nice. This is what I've come up with. Okay. It's upsetting. All right. So the Child Welfare League of America reached out to the Tennessee Children's Home Society because they're no longer endorsing them. They discovered that the Tennessee Children's Home Society Memphis branch, which was run by a woman named Georgia Tan, routinely destroyed most of the paperwork associated with its child placements. Okay. 
So Georgia Tan argued that since Tennessee adoptions were shielded by privacy laws, that the society wasn't actually in violation of the practice, the, the state basically said, so you just can't do that. So we're no longer endorsing you because you can't destroy these records. It's not cool. Wow. And Georgia Tan's like, but it, privacy laws. And they're like, no, you can't do that. So the Tennessee Children's Home Society no longer endorsed by the state. This is 1941. Throughout the 40s, questions began to build about the operation of the society and its closed board of trustees. The public thought that it was odd that the society was arguing with the the practice of not destroying records in the first place. They also thought it was weird that the head of a charitable organization um, was being chauffeured around in Packard limousines. Yeah, yeah. That's a warning sign, mm. I would think. Mm. And then by 1950, the operation was officially under investigation. But why? This, uh, this organization... Uh, put families with babies and babies with families and all that, et cetera, et cetera, love business, right? Mm -hmm. Warm feelings. Sure. Warm feelings. Well, it turns out that Georgia Tan had arranged for adoptions under some questionable means. Uh-oh. A.K.A. had stolen and sold thousands of children. Thousands? Thousands. Over... How long a period of time? We're getting to it. Oh, my God. State investigators discovered that the society was a front for a broad black market adoption ring headed by Georgia Tan. So from 1924 to 1950, Tan and the Tennessee Children's Home Society sold babies on the black market over nearly three decades. An estimated 5,000 children were nabbed and sold to new families. Oh, my God. So... A child would just disappear. Parents wouldn't know what happened to the child. It would have been abducted by Georgia Tan mm -hmm. and then just sold off. Yep. So she could ride around in a Packard. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, at least she had a plan. Tan used pressure tactics, threats of legal action, and other methods to take children from their birth parents, mostly single mothers, um, so she could sell them to wealthy parents. She also arranged for the taking of children born to inmates at Tennessee mental institutions and those born to wards of the state through her connections. She also arranged kidnappings, like straight up kidnappings. Jesus. And in some cases, parents would drop their children off at nursery schools, and when they'd come to pick them up, they would be told that welfare agents had come to take their children. Now, because so many of these parents were poor, they had no means to fight this. Children would be temporarily placed with the society because a family was experiencing illness in some cases. So mom's sick. They need someone to care for the child. Fine. The Tennessee Children's Home Society is here, uh, but you don't get your kid back. They, they've been sold. Oh, yeah. Well, that that happens. Oops. It's, um, it's, it's due to uh, faulty paperwork. There were some instances where, you know, especially through, let's say, the 30s, 40s, there was so much unemployment. Sure. There was so much insecurity uh, financially that um, people would be desperate for a way to know that their kids were safe. So they, the Tennessee Children's Home Society, they would leave them with the Tennessee Children's Home Society, knowing that they would be fed, that they would be clothed, that they, and then they could come and get them when um, they got a job again, when 
when they had financial security again. Uh, but when that happened, um, their their children had either uh, been placed with another family or the Tennessee Children's Home Society would say, there's no record of you dropping a kid off here. Wow. Which to me is the most twisted thing I can possibly imagine. Just gaslighting, just saying, oh, you didn't drop a kid off here. We you're, have no record of you're that. You're crazy. No idea what you're talking about. You're insane. Georgia Tam was also documented as taking children born to unwed mothers at birth and uh, claiming that the babies needed health, medical care. And when the mothers followed up about the kids, Tam would tell them that they had died, which I can't help but be reminded of my mom and her situation. Now, she wasn't anywhere near Tennessee at the time, but when my mom was very young, she had a baby out of wedlock and was told that it was stillborn, even though she heard this baby crying when oh it was born. Wow. So, you know, you wonder about those situations and the the how far spread was this kind of behavior. And as you mentioned, most of these um, parents were of little or no means. How could they fight it? How? Especially when Tan had people working for her. So she would bribe nurses and doctors in birthing wards to snatch up infants for her. She enlisted the aid of Memphis family court judge Camille Kelly, who used her position of authority to sanction Tan's tactics. So wow. Tan would find uh, kids in the neighborhood. She would identify children that she thought would be good targets and then uh, push through paperwork saying that their parents were unfit or that they wow. weren't being taken care of. Oh my this God. was a huge scale thing. Kelly also severed custody of divorced mothers. If you were divorced, you weren't a fit parent. So mm. these people could steal your children sure, and sell them. Sure, sure. In, in these situations, divorced mothers potential food insecurity, unemployment, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe, maybe Georgia Tan is just a concerned woman, you know, who's just really looking out for the well-being of children. Um, uh, the money says, no, bitch. No. Nope. That's not the case. The home, the Tennessee Children's Home Society, charged about $7 per adoption, um, which seems insane but okay you know money wow. was different then that's fine well um, it was during the depression sure sure sure. seven dollars was a lot of money but adoptions in states like mississippi and arkansas and missouri could be arranged for 750 dollars. but there were other places where georgia tan was able to charge a premium upwards of five thousand dollars for her services so she'd find particularly desirable babies and sell them to families in new york or california yeah. the further away the less likely that you'd be able to follow up on this and the more money she could get and by more desirable you mean wicked white babies white babies wicked white babies there's a book that was written called before we were yours by author lisa wingate and she wrote it's a fiction but it's based on this story and she talks about the adoptive parents who were also victims in this and she wrote imagine in the mid-20s through the mid-50s, sometimes you're a person who desperately wants to be a parent. And so you apply to adopt, but for whatever reason, you're too old or your husband, uh, a different religions, there's a divorce in your history. There's no child for you because you're deemed unfit. Mm. So what do you do in those cases? You find someone who will go outside those lines sure. and make sure that, that you can get 
a, a baby and what a blessing that would seem like, what an amazing opportunity that would seem like. And so, yeah, you're willing to pay those dollars, but it turns out that baby was stolen. God. From someone. It's estimated that about 90% of the babies sold went to New York and California because she could get those bigger dollars. Sure. And because of the, the just the sheer geographical uh, barriers um, right. to getting your children back. You know, if you're a poor person in Tennessee, you don't know where that baby is. You don't, even if you did know, how do you get it back? How do you go to LA? Right. Yeah. Notable personalities who use tan services but weren't necessarily aware of the tactics, of course, include Joan Crawford. No kidding. Her twin daughters, Kathy and Cynthia, were adopted through the agency. Wow. I knew you were going to say Joan Crawford. You did? Yeah. Weird. She seems like the type who wouldn't have minded to, you no. know, either way, yeah. even if she did now. I saw Mommy Dearest. The uh, parents of professional wrestler Ric Flair, who, by the way, was a nature boy, his parents uh, adopted him through the Tennessee Children's Home Society. No kidding. And New York Governor Herbert Lehman, who signed a law sealing birth certificates from New York adoptees in 1935, also adopted a child through the agency, well, which seems super shady. That's a bit sketchballs, if you ask me. Mm. Uh, quick question. Go. Now, the, the building that the Tennessee, what was the name of the place again? The Tennessee Children's Home Society. Yeah. Is that building still standing? And the reason I ask is I saw a documentary recently, which is eerily similar to the story that you're telling. It wasn't actually, it wasn't recently. It was a couple of years ago. And they went into the building that still stands and they found in the basement, uh, chains and shackles. No, I don't think, I don't think it still stands, but that's horrible. Yeah, there was, I don't. There was a children's home where they did find... I remember hearing about that. Yeah. Yeah, but no, that's not the same place. Okay. They also said that other place was haunted. That's why you were watching yep. it. Yeah. Yeah, it was a ghost yep. hunter show. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, that's not to say that everything in the the building was on the up and up. We'll get to that. So adoptive parents, like we said, also victims uh, in, in so many ways uh, because... Very often, these children that they're adopting have completely falsified histories. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't say, yeah, this baby was born in Blah and I stole her from Blah. Um, so let's say that this baby was stolen from a Tennessee mental health ward. And you're not going to tell these adoptive families that you stole this baby from no. someone who suffers from mental illness. Right. Not if you want to get top dollars. You're going to tell them this nice story and you're just going to make something up. So their mental, I mean, their Health histories are made up, where they come from is made up, and when adoptive parents would discover that something was amiss, such as cases of falsified medical histories, Tan would threaten them with possible legal action or force the surrender of their children so she could resell them. No kidding. Wow. She, I'll, I'll give her this. She had an efficient business model. It was horrendous wow. like and so uh so many bases were covered she was getting them from so many places she had so many people working for her including she had the backing of former mayor and political boss e.h crump which he sounds like a villain doesn't he he does yeah and that made intimidation really easy it's not he sounds yeah he sounds like a villain from a roll doll 
book. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah, the like I said, the the building not on the up and up. Children also disappeared from the Tennessee Children's Home Society. Um, in the 26 years that they were in business, it's estimated that around 500 kids died while in the custody of the Tennessee Children's Home Society, um, either through poor care or suspected abuse. Yeah, it sounds a lot like the uh, the show that I I watched. Yeah, and they were actually just burying them out in the woods behind the behind the building. There were some that they had mm. done exactly that with. But the scheme entered its twilight days when Gordon Browning, who was a political enemy of Crump, um, e. H. Crump, that's right, um, and he caught wind of this whole like selling babies racket, and he launched the investigation. So following that 1950 state investigation, it was revealed that uh, Tan had arranged for thousands of adoptions under questionable means, and state investigators discovered that th- it was a front for this black market uh, adoption ring. And this went on for decades. So she knew without Crump in power, she had decidedly less influence than she was used to and that the investigation was probably going to be the end of this this situation. Um, So this investigation is officially launched. Right. And like within a few days, Georgia Tan dies of cancer. No kidding. So there's no justice at all. It's horrible. No records. No. It's awful. I wonder if now, since we have access to DNA testing, if, mm. if that could make a difference. You would you would think so and hope so. And there are probably so many babies out there that have no idea that they're not with their real parents. Sure, right. And, you know, parents who have passed away, who never told their kids that they were adopted. Mm-hmm. There's no there's any number of situations that lead to just heartbreaking thoughts about about this situation. And it was only two months later that the Tennessee Children's Home Society uh, Memphis branch was shut down. 19 of the children who died under the care of Tennessee Children's Home Society under Georgia Tan's care uh, were buried in a lot at the historic Elmwood Cemetery with no headstones. Uh, Tan had bought... Was it a mass grave or... Uh, well, no, they were they were buried at different in, times. Individually, okay. Um, she had bought the lot sometime before 1923 and recorded the children there by their first names only. Mm. So um, it was like baby Estelle, baby Joseph, and so on. In 2015, the cemetery raised $13,000 to erect a monument in their memory. And it reads as this, in part. In memory of the 19 children who finally rest here unmarked, if not unknown, and all the hundreds who died under the cold, hard hand of the Tennessee Children's Home Society. Their final resting place is unknown. Their final peace, a blessing. The hard lesson of their fate changed adoption procedure and law nationwide. Wow. It's so sad. It is. But because of this whole situation, scrutiny really was placed on how adoptions were handled in that state and nationwide. Mm. And it, it did change things. Um like I said, so many people who probably just don't even know that they're affected by this, which is heartbreaking. And you said that it's estimated 500 children disappeared during yeah. this time, and, and they only know where 19 of them are. Yeah. So they could have been sold. They could have been... Yeah. Yeah. Just 
yep. buried in the basement. There was, uh, in the the author, Lisa Wingate, who wrote that book, um, she was doing a tour and she had several of the babies that had been trafficked through this home mm-hmm. who were now adults telling her their stories. So um, she she used their actual stories for this book. And one of them was telling the story of how she was adopted, which was that her parents had come to the home looking for a baby. And Georgia Tan was offering up this little baby boy, you know, who was perfect and beautiful and recently stolen. And <laughs> uh, the parents could hear, like the distressed sounds of a baby and they Mm -hmm. kept asking about like what is what is that that we're hearing Mm -hmm. and georgia chan kept telling them you don't need to worry about that you know this baby's great and you know shoving this this fresh baby in their face right um and eventually the mom just started walking toward this sound that she was hearing and she found a bassinet with a baby inside that had um a rash covering its entire body who was severely malnourished and she said that um they just picked that baby up and said we're taking this one and that woman told the story about how she was allergic to cow's milk and that's why she had this horrible rash and she just wasn't being she was gonna die basically under the care of the tennessee children's home society but her parents were like nope we're taking this one and it's just makes you it makes you have all the feelings sure and that, you know, that situation worked out really well for that baby. Um, but how many didn't? And uh, that woman's able to tell her story. And I think that's fabulous. And that's I'm going to add that book to uh, our Goodreads page. And that's the end of that story. Bye. And now, the Box of Oddities brings you that thing in the middle. So the New York Public Library released a sample of queries and conundrums. That (laughs) had been submitted by people to the New York Public Library as librarians were the source of all information. Sure. Uh, And these questions were submitted anywhere from the 1940s to the 1980s. Here are a smattering for your pleasure. Number five from June 15th, 1967. Question. What is the natural enemy of a duck? Librarian, what do you mean? Questioner, well, a whole flight of them landed in my pool and I waved a broom at them, but they all they do is look at me and quack. I thought I could introduce the natural enemy into my pool area. A question submitted via telephone in May of 1944. Do camels have to be licensed in India? It's a great question. Why wouldn't you wonder that? Inquiry at the desk, 1948, quote, Can you give me a reference book listing the colors of different countries? Colors are pretty much the same everywhere. From January of 1944, BM submitted this question. What percentage of all bathtubs in the world are in the U.S.? (laughs) Great question, BM. And number one from January 9th, 1961, a telephone call. Quote, I am from Wilmington, North Carolina, and my daddy owns the second oldest lighthouse in the country. Where can I sell it? (laughs) Oh, the days before eBay. (laughs) The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. You know, to get ahead today, you really need to look your best. But that's hard. It's hard to look your best. That's why Stitch Fix is such 
a great idea because it's your online personal styling service that finds and delivers you clothes and shoes and accessories to fit your body, your budget, and your lifestyle. Yeah, you can go to stitchfix.com slash box and tell them your sizes, what styles you like, and how much you want to spend on each item. Their questionnaire in getting you ready for your first Stitch Fix box. It's fun. Is, it is fun. And it's uh, it's more in-depth than I expected it to be, which I appreciate because I am so such a picky human person for someone who wears garbage clothes. It doesn't even make any sense. But you don't wear garbage clothes anymore thanks to Stitch Fix. They hooked you up and you are looking good, lady. Thank you. Yeah, uh, you'll be paired with your very own personal stylist who will hand pick five items and then send them right to your door. And you don't have to keep all five. You keep the ones that'll work for you. And there's nothing grosser than the pressure inside of a dressing room at a department store or whatever when you're like, are people wondering what's taking me so long? Are these mirrors lying to me? Right. Can someone zip me up? And then you have to slink back to the rack and leave the clothes that don't fit. It's right. humiliating. Yeah. Um. Yeah. None of these are going to work. No. Thanks. No. Because I don't know how to pick out clothes for my own body. Check out Stitch Fix. They will hook you up. There's no subscription required. You can sign up to receive scheduled shipments. Get your fix whenever you want. And Stitch Fix's styling fee is only $20, which is applied toward anything you keep from your shipment. Get started now at stitchfix.com slash box and you'll get an extra 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash box to get started today. I've always wanted my own personal stylist, yes, but please. I never thought I could afford it. Stitch Fix gives you your own personal online stylist and oh yeah, you can afford it. Especially when you go to stitchfix.com slash box, you will get an extra 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. Stitchfix.com slash box. Do it and start looking good. The podcast world is growing bigger every day and Himalaya wants to help you navigate it. Himalaya is a brand new podcast app where you can find every single podcast you love and some future faves. Whether you're a podcaster or a fan, Himalaya has got your back. Discover personally curated playlists and show your favorite podcasters some love with Himalaya's tip jar. It's free, it's the easiest to use, and we're adding cool new features every day. Go to your app store, download Himalaya. That's H-I-M-A-L-A-Y-A. And don't forget to follow the Box of Oddities once you're there. They've been married longer than they've been doing this podcast, and they're still talking to each other. Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth continue with The Box of Oddities. If you wanted to leave a message, create a statement that would exist well into the future, where people could see your point of view, whatever that message may be, how would you do that? How would you make sure that it survived into future generations? My first thought, like just just shouting it out, is carve it into rocks. There you go. On people's tombstones. Yeah. I came across this this article. It's about cryptic messages Ooh. that people carved into their tombstone for one reason or another. Ooh. So like epitaphs that that have hidden meanings. One of the first topics that I did on the box of oddities was um, epitaphs. This kind of goes a little bit further than that. Clearly, they're epitaphs, but they have some sort of mystery surrounding them. And in some cases, those mysteries have been solved. 
I'm so excited about this, and I don't I look. I want you to look me in the face in the face parts. Yeah. I never want you to feel bad about talking to me about epitaphs. Okay, good. It, I, well, you, I don't. That's always open. <laughs> that's I'm, always open for discussion. I'm very excited about it. <laughs> in Warren County, New Jersey, there is a simple headstone at the Cedar Ridge Cemetery, and it just says, Princess Doe, missing from home, dead among strangers, remembered by all, born, question mark, found, July 15th, 1982. So in July of that year of 1982, the story is a body of a teenage girl was found near the cemetery in Warren County, New Jersey. Mm. Um, This person had been beaten to death. Uh, Her body was thrown into a ravine, which was next to the cemetery grounds. Despite the fact that uh, she wore nice clothing and appeared to be in good health, she was never identified and her killer's have never been brought to justice, so her gravestone just reads Princess Doe. There was a serial killer in New Jersey who was killing young women in the early 80s. I can't remember his name right now. Ooh, do a little research. Maybe you can solve that. Okay. Oh, yeah. No, he shot people. He didn't beat them to death. Sorry, never mind. (laughs) Okay. There's a tombstone that simply says cross, the word cross on it, March 13th, 1899, Murdered by human wolves. Oh, my goodness. That kind of conjures up werewolf images in one's, in one's brain. That Certainly, it suggests that. The real story is this. They were able to, uh, to uncover what the deal was with that. In 1917, there was a doctor. His name was A.H. Yates. Using those two initials again, Dr. A.H. Yates. He faced charges for performing a criminal operation that resulted in death. Now, it sounds like, you know, a medical accident, maybe malpractice or something, but it was an abortion. Oh. Of course, in 1917, abortions were extremely illegal. (laughs) How is something extremely illegal? (laughs) It's extremely illegal then. (laughs) And the ones that were available, of course, were dangerous of course and shady and yeah. back room kind of stuff so what happened was Catherine cross went to receive one and the operation killed her as oh, well goodness. as the fetus uh, the doctor was uh he was released charges were dismissed and the only satisfaction according to ranker that her parents got was the final few words that they chiseled into her tombstone in ohio there's a tombstone that simply says, Eugene, found dead, 1929, buried, 1964. Wait, what? Okay, here's what happened. Wait, was he was he used as a mannequin and a carnival prop? Pretty close to it. No! Yeah. That's like a Elmer Mc, 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 McCurdy. McCurdy. Yeah, in a previous episode. So in 1929, the body of an elderly black man appeared in Ohio on the side of the road. No one ever identified the body. They didn't know where it came from. Mm. They found uh, an address in his pocket, and it led to a vacant lot. So the closest neighbor to the lot was named Eugene, so authorities just gave him that name. But rather than burying the guy, they decided to put his body on display as a roadside attraction. What is wrong with you people? Well, they gave him a new suit every year, so that was nice. He was a tourist attraction mummy for 35 years. But in 1964, 
he was finally laid to rest and given this tombstone. That is tremendous. And that mindset concerns me is all I'm going to say, I guess. Yeah. At some point, there was a disconnect that that person at one point was a person. Right. And not a roadside attraction. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing. Like, you know, the uh, body works or body world. What's it called? Body. Yeah. yeah the yeah, yeah, the thing. Those people signed up for this. Right. They're cool with their body being used for learnings and such. Uh, this guy, he has. You don't. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. You can't. It's disrespectful. It's awful. There are gravestones in the Ohio Asylum for the Insane Cemetery. Numerous ones. Man, I'm glad we've come up with better names for mental health facilities. Yeah, Insane Asylum. That was the official name. There are a couple that stand out that are maybe a little bit more disturbing than than most. They simply say, specimens. What? Yep. Speculation is that... Uh, the bodies of children experimented on with untested medicine, body parts were just thrown in there and covered up. And they just, just put one word on the stone, specimens. Huh, that's rough. This one's rough too. Oh, good. This tombstone simply says, baby monster, born oh. October 23rd, 1888, died February 3rd, 1889. Baby monster. So they did some research and it seems as though this child was born with some severe deformity. And even though the child lived to be about five months old before passing away, they never gave it a name. And so they just buried it under the moniker baby monster, baby monster. Wow. Wow. That baby would not have fetched much dollars. No, probably not. From the... Uh -uh. No. No. In England, there's a tombstone for a Sir Geoffrey Hudson. Sir Geoffrey Hudson, 1619 to 1682. And it says on his tombstone, quote, A dwarf presented in a pie to King Charles I. Jeffrey Hudson was known as the uh, dwarf of the king. Oh, man. Yeah, he was a favorite companion of King Charles and, uh, and his queen. When he was alive, there's some speculation that he may have worked as a spy. Uh, he served the king as a slave. He became an amazing storyteller in the English court. And so he was introduced to the court in a pie he leaped out of a pie to surprise the king and it made the king laugh. And so the king nicknamed him Lord Minimus and he became one of the king's favorite companions. He died in the late 1600s. However, at this point he was in exile. He was just buried in a mass grave, but they did put a sign above it saying that he was a dwarf presented to uh, the king in a pie. Oh man. His being in exile, though, it surprises me that they would have bothered with a uh, a, a tombstone for it, him. It came later. Okay. Yeah, they, he's buried in a mass grave, and so sure, they okay. just kind of Got tossed it. him in there. But then later, somebody said, you know what? He was Sir Jeffrey. We, right. You know, we he, should recognize. We should recognize that. Oh, but Lord. But yeah, it's, it's sad that he's known for being the pie dwarf. Yeah. 
So in the 1870s, a girl died in poverty. Here's what's written on her tombstone. Kate McCormick, seduced and pregnant by her father's friend. Unwed, she died from abortion, her only choice. Abandoned in life and death by family, with but a single rose from her mother, buried only with the kindness of unknown benefactors. Died February 1875, age 21, victim of an unforgiving society. Have mercy on us. Well, that one kicks you right in the throat. Not much mystery there, though. That's pretty self-explanatory. Mary C. Dulcincy had this carved into her tombstone. In 1985, she wrote, May eternal damnation be upon those in Wailingport who, without knowing me, have maliciously vilified me. May the curse of God be upon them and theirs. Oh. She was angry. Yeah. Yeah. But she took her animosity to a a whole new level there. Uh, Apparently, the story is that uh, she was experiencing paranoid delusions that everybody in the neighborhood conspired against her and and wished her harm. Uh, She was kind of a, a loner. She left everything she had to the Massachusetts Society of the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals when she died in 85. During well, her nice. life, yeah, that was nice. During her life, neighbors say that uh, she continually would pick feuds with people. Mm. Since her death, uh, most townspeople say the curse has really not had any impact on anyone except the guy who carved that in there got paid. So, sure. So that's yeah. good. That's not that's not terribly surprising. No. Sad though, because I know I know that there are a lot of people uh, out there who who deal with these kinds of issues and you know do feel like they're being persecuted when really they just need some mental health help yeah to them it seems very real yeah i mean i don't know her story specifically maybe she was just a dink but it's hard to say in the salt lake city cemetery little is known about what happened here but this this truly is a mystery there's a gravestone that says lily e gray june 6 1881 november 14th 1958 Victim of the Beast, 666, carved right into her headstone. Hmm. Some think that uh, maybe her husband had some issues with her and had that carved in there. Well, that doesn't sound, well, I guess maybe, I don't know. Well, It's, her, it's hard to interpret what that means. Her husband, uh, apparently she, she married him at the age of 72 and he was imprisoned in the past for criminal activity. Oh. So they people think that that may have something to do with it, but but no one's sure why why it says that. Maybe the idea is just that no, I don't know. In memory of Mary Jane McCoon, wife of James W. Ferrer, born about 1838, died 1855. Uh, Mary apparently fell victim to a coyote attack when she was um attending the chicken coop. Her gravestone says, bitten by rabid coyote, developed rabies, became violent, was smothered with feather bed when her husband returned. She and her unborn child were dead and buried. Huh. That's a weird story to put on a tombstone. Just put it on there for everybody to... I don't... Maybe maybe this is a stretch and maybe this is just me and I don't mean any disrespect at all, but that sounds like a story that someone made up Mm -hmm. and then carved on a tombstone so that it could be like, see, look, see? 
right? <laughs> it's on the tombstone. So that that's what happened. I didn't just kill my wife. Yeah, it's on the tombstone. It's got to be real. Right, 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 right. I'm not one to uh, project my... <laughs> my ideas onto other people's lives but it sounds to me you know it probably happened (laughs) you know she was she was messing around she got pregnant Uh by another man's baby Mm -hmm. Uh, no i don't know i don't know that any of that's accurate i'm sorry that's just my inner jerry springer at work i guess (laughs) we all have a little inner jerry springer here's a uh, headstone for a guy named herman harbend now Oddly enough, this headstone was made ahead of time. He ordered the headstone for himself after he divorced his wife. And you can see he was angry. <laughs> he honestly uh, believed that she wanted to uh, to kill him. So it says, Herman Harbend. My wife, Eleanor Arthur of Queens, New York, lived like a princess for 20 years, traveling the world with the best of everything. When I went blind, she tried to poison me, took all my money, all my medication, and left me in the dark alone and sick. It's a miracle I escaped. I won't see her in heaven because she's surely going to hell, exclamation point. Oh, my God. So that was what he chose to leave for future generations is the middle finger to his (laughs) ex-wife. Oh, no. (laughs) Well... You know, I have to say I appreciate his forethought and forward mm. thinking. I think it's important that you uh, plan for the inevitable. <laughs> sure. And in his Take case, the stress off your family. Exactly. Exactly. And he you did imagine that. the chiseling costs on that. That's whew. Yep. I just want on my gravestone just I want who farted. Oh yeah, no, that's that'd be, that'd be that's funny. Not happen. Yeah. Oh. Because you know what happens when when I picture that in my head, I think you're there underground mm-hmm. saying who farted, <laughs> which means that you smell something, which is the smell of your own decomposing oh, body. Oh, I see. That's where your which, brain is. Yeah. yeah. So that's it's your just, inner Jerry Springer. It's, very, uh, sure. <laughs> it's just unsettling for me. I see. <laughs> I don't need to be constantly reminded of your decomposing body. I understand. Thank you. Though, fingers crossed we go at the same time, because I don't want to have to deal with that. (laughs) (sighs) This has gotten even darker than I thought it was going to (laughs) get, and I knew it was going to get dark. I just think it would be easier for both of us. We don't need to discuss our final wishes right now. It's fine. No, I want to. I Personally, I really like the idea that my remains can nourish something like that planted, like a, a, a tree or a shrub or something uh but i also like the idea of being cremated because it just seems more uh economical as far as space goes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like the idea that we're just filling the earth with dead bodies seems a little silly to me i don't know yeah i want to be cremated Mm -hmm. and i haven't decided exactly what i want done with my ashes but i'm thinking that there's one former business partner that mm-hmm. I had years ago who was just a horrible, horrible person and stole from, stole from the company and, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thinking maybe if uh, if if that person outlives me and, he, and they're still around, then um, maybe take some of my ashes, go find him and then just throw them in his face. Just poof, Jethro says, see ya. That might be cool. That's a, <laughs> that's a lasting memory for sure. That's glorious like one of those little uh like new year's poppers yeah just (laughs) jethro said bye (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, no. No, you're just you're gonna veto. I'm just gonna veto all, all of your plans. Uh, all right, fair enough. I I won't be here. I won't care. <laughs> the box of oddities will be live Wednesday, the twenty seventh. Oh my god. Oh my god. Get your tickets at theboxofoddities.com. It's going to be so much fun. Box of Oddities drops a couple of times a week. We look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful, beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those I report to to beseech you for assistance. The Box of Oddities is free. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Please don't leave me. Wouldn't dream of it. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.